This is how you do a good practical joke. All right, pranks. This is the good key. Something is being abused. That is the one common theme. Either you take a product and use it for something it's not meant for. String, water, tax, batteries, heat, saran wrap. That's a good one, right? Saran wrap is meant for wrapping food up so it doesn't spoil. Unless you put it on a doorway when people walk through and it hits them in the face. It's a lot of fun, right? Ha, 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 I get it. It's a lot of fun for me. Um, abusing people's trust, right? Corrupting and destroying their trust. Oh, I'm hurt, I need your help. And then they come and, ah, ha, ha, isn't that funny? I'm not really hurt. See, the joke's on you. See, it, it, no matter what the joke is, something is being destroyed, corrupted, or abused. And I've noticed that, but it, it's really, it's a true commentary. It's a social commentary. We are abusers as people, you know? We abuse things. We always have. We abuse everything. We abuse love. We abuse trust. We abuse ourselves. We abuse others. We abuse creation. Right? Think about it. We're people given to abuse. We like to corrupt things, pollute things, destroy things beyond what they were created to do. We do this because we're kind of messed up people. We do this because we're polluted and because we have sin. God gave us actually a spiritual gift in Jesus Christ, even knowing that we would even corrupt and abuse that. Him. That gift to us. That righteousness to us. That we would even do that. And even though He was beautiful and perfect to us, we treated Him with great contempt. Our actions towards God underscored how we didn't deserve any mercy, yet His actions for us underscored how much mercy He gave us. It's very beautiful what God has done. I mean, the gospel for us, for you and for me, is that in the fever pitch, in the highest points, in the pinnacle of our rebellion and our abuse, He did not come to abuse us, which is what we deserved, right? He came to give us grace and life, which is not what we deserved, right? We all know this. We hear this all the time. It's by my hands that I abused Christ, and it's by His hands that He gave me grace. It was my most horrible moment as a person, yet... At the same time, it was my most beautiful moment as a person. That's the gospel for us. Once he did this, once he went up on the tree and came down as a dead man, which he was, a very dead man, and they put a very dead man in a very dark grave, and he came out very alive. As he did this, he taught for several days, a long time. Then he went up, ascended to the right hand of God, and then what does he do? He births a church, which he calls his bride, and he gives this church beautiful gifts. But we would abuse those too, wouldn't we? Because we're abusers. It's who we are. We really can't help it. It's in our DNA. So, today, I do want to talk about something that we abuse in spiritual gifts. Now, last week, we talked about spiritual gifts in general, and I never really got nitty-gritty. Like I said last week, I shotgunned it, okay? I shot really broad. And what I wanted to deal with was the heart, our heart's attitude towards that. How Paul spoke to two different cities, one being Corinth and one being Thessalonica, right? Corinth was crazy and they abused it. Thessalonica abused it as well, but it wasn't because they were crazy. It's because they forbade it. It's because they didn't want anything to do with it. If you read between the lines, anyway. That's what, that's what most scholars believe. And so I want to look at that a little bit again today. Except I don't want to look at all the gifts. There's more than 15 of them mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, um, Peter, oh good, Ephesians. We see it a lot. I want to deal with two in particular, and it's the two that freak you out the most. Okay? I want to deal with tongues. I want to deal with prophecy. 
Alright? Now listen, I know Air just left the room when I said that, okay? I'm not going to preach it in tongues. I'm going to teach what tongues is, okay? So it's okay. Now listen, also today I would expect some questions on this. I would, because I'm going to have to fly through a lot of this. If you have a question on this, the number's up here. Some of you have already done it, so you know how to use it. Just text that number with your questions. We will do the best we can to answer as many as we can in the short time we have, as soon as I'm done here today, okay? Now, we do tend to abuse and break things in two different ways. Sometimes we're just uninformed, and we just don't know how to use something. We don't know the rules, so we're going to break them, right? That's why Paul wrote the letter. If you look in 1 Corinthians 12, right, Paul says this, Now concerning spiritual gift, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to not have a manual. I want you to know what you're doing. So I'm writing this letter to you. This is part of the deal. I mean, there's a lot that he addressed in 1 Corinthians. This was one of them, okay? Because if you don't know the rules, you're going to break them. You're going to corrupt them, abuse them, destroy them. Any of y'all ever been to a, uh, a Little League game? Little League practice, anything like that? Listen, those dings and those little tiny aluminum bats, they're not from pot flies. They're from those kids using them as lightsabers. They're hitting dugout posts. They're hitting helmets. They're hitting each other. They're throwing them. They're abusing them. Why? Because they don't really know. They're still figuring out. The, I mean, in the Little League, they don't even use all the rules. That drove me crazy as a coach. You can't steal. You can't do all kinds of stuff. It's not really a game anymore, you know? They've stripped it down to like four basic rules. And these kids, they don't know all the rules. So they run, but they don't run through first base. They stop on first base. That drives me crazy. Sometimes you're lucky if they even touch first base, right? Of course, the other team doesn't even know to throw them out because they don't know the rules. They don't know that you can do that. So they don't know the rules, so they break them. They abuse them. They destroy them. Right? If you don't know what order is and the order that you want to work towards, if you don't know that, things will always swing towards disorder. It will. Anyone have a pegboard in their garage? Isn't it so beautiful when you first hang all the tools up there? Isn't it so nice? You look at it, you just want to take a picture. Some of you are like, not me, I don't even have a pegboard. I do. And I glory in that moment of having all the tools perfectly, symmetrically placed, where there's not too much dead space on the board, but it's all evenly and symmetrically coated with tools, right? Some of them in size and order. And, but man, I mean, you give it three months, forget about it. Screwdriver's upside down, a tool totally missing. That drives me crazy. If you don't drive towards order, you are driving towards disorder. Paul didn't want this to happen. This is Corinth, though. Right? And it's us, largely. As a church in America, as a church in the world, it's us. This is a church that did not understand how to use the gifts God had given them, and so it swung towards disorder, abuse, destruction, corruption. The gifts didn't point to God very well, did they? They sure as heck did not preach the gospel. Paul had to deal with that. We serve a God of order and not disorder, yet these gifts, they pointed toward a deep, disorder and chaos. Today we can be a little bit like that. We can, maybe we won't be so Corinthian that we try to dominate each other or try to one-up the next dude and inflate our own and elevate our, our own position and authority. But we can be like that a little bit. We can be uninformed. We can know just enough about spiritual gifts to abuse them and point to ourselves. And it's very easy to do and it's very intoxicating. 
Alright? We are not above it. So Paul wanted this church to be informed. He wrote a letter. God wants us to be informed. We read the letter. I'm going to spend just as much time on these two gifts as Paul does. You're probably thinking, Luke, why would you even deal with prophecy and tongues? That's probably the most uncomfortable subject you can literally preach on. And I agree. Alright? It is uncomfortable. Now, we promise to teach uncomfortable passages, though. We've already established that as a church. We teach through the Bible, we will teach through letters, and we won't skip anything. But yet, why this? He spent an entire chapter on it. How to deal with prophecy and tongues, specifically in the gathering. Right? So that's what we're going to do. You can abuse things because you're uninformed. You can also abuse things because you're disinterested. And if you're disinterested enough and it starts to cost you, make you uncomfortable, you become prejudiced against it. Right? Think about it. Think about it. Anyone who's ever done car repairs knows this feeling. You go and get an oil change, you're sitting in that little room with the TV on, the views on, right? It's blaring, and you're trying to get stuff done or make your phone calls, and you know they're going to walk in and tell you how dirty your air filter is. You know they're going to do it. They're going to do it. None of you in this room care about your air filter, besides maybe Jeff and Garrett and some of these guys, right? Most of you don't even know where it's at under your hood. You don't care about it. And so they'll come in with the air filter. Uh, Mr. So-and-so, your air filter is pretty trash. I don't know how many miles you have on this. And so they're, they kind of they, they accordion it out and show you all the dirt down in the pleats and everything. And there's just evil dripping from it and grime and stench cometh forth from it. And what do you want them to do? You want them to shake it out and put it back in the car. That's what you really want them to do. Why do you want them to do that? Because you don't care. You're disinterested. You don't mind abusing that air filter and abusing your car. You don't care about doing that because you don't care about the air filter. And what if you have to replace it? Well, now it's cost you. So now your disinterest is prejudice. Now it's not just an air filter. It's a stupid air filter because you had to buy a new one. Stupid air filter, right? Now you're prejudiced because it's cost you. We can also be like that. Now that's not so Corinthian. That might be a little bit more Thessalonian. But we can do that. It begins in disinterest, and it moves towards prejudice. In 1 Thessalonians 5, this is what Paul says real quickly. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. I believe it was most likely a church that started to see gifts used, maybe in a Corinthian manner, became very disinterested and possibly very prejudiced against it. Listen, and like I said last week, and if you didn't listen to the the message last week, you might need to listen to it. If this maybe confuses you or you don't understand what I'm talking about, it was very key in this a little bit. This is the camp I would fall in. I would be a little bit more of a Thessalonian, and I grew up in the charismatic movement, all right? I was like a Thessalonian stuck in Corinth, you know, always bothered by everything going on around me. So I understand what they were dealing with. I understand with the, with the drive and the desire to just stop it, shut it down, don't have anything to do with it anymore because it's being abused. So we'll just stop it. That way there's no more abuse anymore, right? Now, no one in the Thessalonian church says things like, man, that was really bizarre and odd. Where do we get more of that? Where do we get more of that awkwardness? Bring it back. I mean, let's just schedule meetings with nothing but awkwardness and oddities and things I don't understand. Let's do, they didn't say that. They were the opposites. We honor this, this, and this, and the weird stuff. We box up and we put in a dark room and we never talk about it. Right? I understand that. Now, but Paul... Paul doesn't just want a church to have a head connection with the gifts. He wants them to have a heart connection too. He doesn't want just their cerebral to be engaged. He wants their visceral to be engaged with things like spiritual gifts. 
Ergo, he has to do with the church of Thessalonica, right? So in one way, we can be ignorant of the gifts and we can abuse them, like Corinth. In another way, we can be disengaged with the gifts and abuse them all the same. Both are wrong and both is abuse, right? Most of us in this room, not all of us, will slip towards one end or the other. Or at least when I say the word tongues. I mean, some of you freaked out. Some of you didn't care. If I, if I said, I have a prophecy for you right now, some of you would really freak out. Some of you would just go, oh! and some of you would be like, bring it, bring it. I've been wanting one so long. I know, we, because we approach those gifts from one, way, one end or the other, but no one in here is neutral on that. We're just not. It's not a neutral topic. Might I suggest that it is a controversial topic. This has split more churches in the history of the church in the last 2,000 years than probably any other doctrine is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and His gifts, pneumatology. This is probably it. It's the biggest rudder, the biggest signpost in the road. Today I don't want to talk about those gifts we don't get nervous about. I do want to talk about the ones that do make us nervous. Paul spent a lot of time on it. Listen, no one gets nervous about the gift of helps service we love those people don't we they usually have pickups they're always there when someone's moving you know we love those people hey i've got a problem can you come over and help me on my way i'm on my way we love those people they don't freak us out we don't ever say hey that's abuse that dude's abusing his gift of helps or service we don't ever say that right words of wisdom utterance of wisdom we don't freak out on that as well do we no who hates wise words anyone hate wise words in here i don't hate wisdom I'm constantly looking for it. I'm, t- I'm always looking for other people's perspective. We don't ever see anyone abuse that. That's why we're not talking about those things today. I would love, now by the way, I would love to talk on all the other gifts. I would love to take each one of those 15 and spend a, a predominant, I would love to spend a lot of time on it because everyone in here has at least one of them. When God gave gifts, He gave them to us to better each other, to equip each other, and to point to Him. It was meant to help community, not freak it out, right? That's what it was meant for. All of us have some gift. Some of you are teachers. Some of you have a pastoring gift. Some of you have a prophetic gift. Some of you are administrators. Some of you have a great gift of hospitality. Some of you are great contributors. And that means financially. That's in Romans 12, by the way. That's a gift. I know a dude who has it. I know a couple dudes who have it. And it's freaky how much they give away. It's like they're trying to just give away everything. It's a spiritual gift. Faith. Miracles, healing, all of those. Some of you have more than one. Some of you have a lot of one. It's different blends, like fingerprints. I would love to spend time. Yet I don't have that time. I have to pick the most controversial ones. And so we land on tongues. Are you ready? Is everyone okay? Take a deep breath. No tambourines, snakes, banners. It will be okay, all right? (laughs) I'm not getting crazy with you. (laughs) Hey, not to demean that, by the way. Like I said, that's how I grew up. There are basically three types of tongues that we see in the Bible. Most of the time we condense or we reduce it down to one single kind, but you don't want to do that. Biblically, there are three different kinds, okay? Um, We see this in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul refers to various kinds of tongues. That's what that means in the Greek. If you look at it, it means that there are multiple kinds of tongues. One of them is where you might, by the gift of God, speak a tongue in a language you don't know. German. Mandarin. Something like that. And you're like, dude, I've never been to school for that. I don't even know how to spell Mandarin. I just spoke it perfectly. All right? That's a spiritual gift. That is something of the Spirit that you don't know how to do. This happens. 
If you look at some historical records in Topeka, in L.A., there have been people that have started to write or speak in Mandarin that never even finished high school. They just know it. What do they do with these people? They ship them off to China. <laughs> you know? Why not? It's a great gift. Look at Acts 2. Acts 2 is where we see this, biblically. Acts 2 Verses 6 through 8. He's going to throw it on the screen. It says, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So, you have that kind. We don't see that very often, do we? Has anyone ever done it? Has anyone in this room done that before? Y'all wouldn't raise your hand if you did, would you? You bunch of chickens. Okay, but the deal is, is it's a miraculous gift, is it not? That's a miraculous gift. By very definition of miracle, they don't happen often. If it happens often, it's not miraculous anymore. It's normal at that time. So there's a reason you don't see it very often. Um, There's another kind. Tongues that are interpreted publicly. This is the one that freaks everybody out. Okay? These are ones that are in a heavenly angelic language that are not spoken in man's language. All right? So the first one is spoken in, like, like I said, a language that it doesn't even need a Christian to interpret. You need no gifted interpreter to do it. Just a random dude from Germany or China can go, hey, I know what he's saying. Right? No need of a gift of interpretation. This one, you need a gift of interpretation. Right? It's a heavenly language, one that is not of this world. No, I don't know what that means. I don't know if this is a language God speaks or the angels. It just, I'm just going to tell you what Paul says. He says it's a heavenly and angelic language. Okay, It does require a gift of interpretation. And Paul has a lot to say here. Um, and then there's a third. This is that tongues <clears throat> that can happen that need no interpretation because it's happening in, in private. No longer is this publicly done. It's privately done. Just you and God and no other soul around you. Paul did this. He says, I do it more than all of you. He excelled in it. Right? We'll talk a little bit about that. Now, I do want to not spend any time on the first one, on the true foreign languages that happen on earth. I do want to spend my time on the second two, the ones that are of a heavenly and angelic origin. Is that fair? Okay. Um, It cannot be interpreted by human understanding. It can't. Because it's a mystery to our human minds. It says this. It says this in 1 Corinthians 14.2. Do you have that? Did I tell you that one? For, one who, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. In this tongue, in fact, it is not to men. When someone speaks in a tongue, they're not talking to you. They're talking to God. It says this in verse 14. Did I give you that one too? It says this, For I pray, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So there's an unfruitfulness of the mind. It's a mystery. The person speaking it doesn't have any idea of what he's saying unless God gives that person the gift to interpret what he's saying. No one else understands what's going on. It sounds weird. It sounds different. It actually sounds... I mean, you know how you can tell when someone's speaking a language from a country that you've never been to? You can tell. There's a certain way that you can tell when someone's speaking a different language, even if you don't know what that language is. Tongues is not like that. It's different. 
It does have a mystery too. Now, a common misconception is this, and this is the one I grew up with. In, in either you'll see this in Assembly of God churches, um, Pentecostal churches. You'll see this in a lot of charismatic churches, where they will treat tongues as if you can speak in tongues to people and pray in tongues to God, and everybody has the gift of praying in tongues. That's actually incorrect. We don't all have this gift. First and foremost, let me just let you off the hook. A lot of you don't have that gift, so stop feeling condemned. Also, if you do have the gift of speaking in tongues, it is not to man, it is only to God. It is only to God. He says this in verse 2, For if one who speaks in a tongue speaks, not to men, but to God. Not to men, but to God. So what would an interpreted tongue sound like? Someone comes up, interprets, should sound a lot like a prayer. If it sounds like a prophecy, someone's missed. I don't know who. I don't know if the dude speaking the tongue missed, if the dude interpreting the tongue missed, or if both of them missed. I don't know. But if it sounds like a prophecy addressed to you, it is not a tongue. Okay? It's not. It's a prayer to God. It should sound like a prayer to God. Tongues does not become prophecy. Prophecy is prophecy. Tongues are prayers. Does that make sense? So if you're ever in a church ever in a church, this one, another one, if you're ever in a church where someone comes up or in a prayer meeting or a missional community and say, hey, I have a tongue and I have an interpretation or someone has an interpretation and it comes out and it's like a prophecy, you can throw a flag. I mean, be cool about it, right? We don't stone these people or excommunicate them. It's a miss. Someone missed. All right? That's what happens. So, where I'm at, I'm way off the notes. In a service like this, missional community, in a living room, there must be an interpreter there. There must be an interpreter for this to be a qualified, genuine gift. And there needs, now listen, if someone gets up and preaches in a tongue, or speaks in a tongue, or prays in a tongue, however you want to say it, and no interpreter gets up, that person might not be missing. They might be doing it right. There might be a person with the gift of interpretation that's not stepping up. Right? It could come apart that way. That's why you don't see it very often. It's one of the unique gifts where it takes the faith of two people and the obedience of two people. You're not going to see that happen very often. Right? That's a lot of times why we see what we see. But it must be an interpreter and it must edify the body and encourage the saints. Now this is big for Paul. You can't read through 1 Corinthians and not get this from Paul. Paul's biggest concern is, is it edifying the body? Is it helping the body? Is it loving the body? Is it equipping the body? That's all he cares about. He says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Do you have that one, Matt? I can't remember what I gave you. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, you Corinthian church, strive to excel in building up the church. There it is. Strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now listen. Paul loves prophecy. When you read 1 Corinthians 14, it looks like he's putting prophecy above tongues over and over again. He's not. He's not building an echelon of this is the most important gifts and these it starts getting less and less and less and less and less significant. Right? He's not doing that because if you read chapter 12, he made a big deal about how all the gifts are needed. Hey, it's like a human body. We all need an ankle. We all need an eyeball. We all need an elbow, a pancreas, I think. Do we need a pancreas? We need a pancreas. We need these things to be a, a, a good body. So he would never go back and say, we really need this gift. The rest of these we can marginalize. That's not his attitude towards this. He's just simply stating that when the goal is to edify and equip the body, prophecy gets the job done. Prophecy gets the job done because everybody understands it. It's born of the word. Tongues, it needs an interpreter. It might miss. 
So if you're going to earnestly desire the gifts, make sure that it's prophecy as well. Earnestly desire the gifts, especially that you may prophesy, he says. Okay? And he does give us instruction on how it should look. And we've already talked about that a little bit. If somebody misses, somebody gets up in your communities, in a meeting that you have, however it looks, I don't even care. I'm not even going to put parameters on how big the gathering need to be. If someone speaks in a tongue and they miss, Paul says, listen, don't freak out on the dude. Don't call him a heretic. He just goes back to his chair. He sits down and he keeps silent and he keeps it between him and God. He keeps silent. Listen, silent doesn't mean quieter. Silent means silent, right? doesn't mean under your breath. It doesn't mean just so the nine people around you hear. It means silent. It means have some love and quit being an immature baby. That's what it says. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 12. Stop being immature babies. Stop being babies. It's not about you and your gift. It's about the body growing together. Have some limitations on your freedom when love is a thing that could be compromised. That's what he's talking about, right? I'm way off these notes. I'm flying, though. That's the good news for you. I'm moving faster than my notes. People, well, let me just say this. Just so you feel protected as a church. Nobody touches this mic and speaks a tongue over this church unless they've checked it through with the elders. We understand who this person is. They're not just an attender. They're a covenant partner with this church. We can attest to their character. We can attest that this is a gift that they have. And we know that there will be an interpretation that will happen. Alright? If this person gets up and does it and there's no interpretation, then that's a miss. We explain it to the body and unpack it for everybody. No harm, no foul. Everybody smiles, right? But what if somebody comes in, because I mean, churches are big, we have microphones, the advent of sound technology. This is where it gets abused a lot in churches. They think the only time that a tongue needs an interpretation is when it happens on the mic. Incorrect. A tongue needs an interpretation if it happens at all in a gathering. So if somebody's sitting in row 16, seat 4, and they're praying in a tongue, and these people over here might not hear them, and those folks back there might not hear them, but the nine people around um, the person with the gift of tongues can hear them, hey, that's a foul too. We'll have to pull that person out and say, hey man, thanks for your gifting. That's a cool gift. I like the gift. The deal is, is you're freaking people out around you. And it doesn't make any sense. People are going to leave offended at something other than the cross. Listen, when we preach the gospel, people are going to be offended by the cross. They're going to be offended by what Jesus Christ did. I'm fine with that. It will offend some. I don't want anything else offending them. We don't want anything else offending them. Are we trying to limit the gifts? No, we're trying to honor what the Holy Spirit has already given us in the Word. Okay? Does that make sense? I hope you feel a little bit more protected on that. Now, because if not, let me just, un- let me just say... If not, if we don't honor at least even that caveat, it is possible to walk into churches and have 35, 45, 85% of them praying in tongues loudly, thinking it's okay, you don't need an interpreter because it's not happening on the mic. So it's not official. This doesn't give it an official stamp, right? This microphone doesn't. So it's okay to pray in tongues, but you need an interpreter. Does that make sense? Text me your questions. Just text them. Um... Paul does not, like I said, marginalize this gift. He loves it. He actually excels at it. He says, I do it more than all of you. But when it comes to the edification of the body, I'd rather speak just a few intelligible words than speak in tongues for a really long time. That's his attitude on it. Paul 
needed an interpreter to do this in, in public. He did. Paul needed an interpreter to exercise his gift in public. So, Paul does something really cool. I am going to teach this because I've always wanted to. He uses an illustration in verse 20. Can you pull that up? Some of you have read this over the years and you're like, what the heck is this mean? Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? The answer is yes, they will. They will think you're out of your minds. But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convinced by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Okay, what is he doing? Paul is referring to Isaiah 28. He's dipping back into the Old Testament. Okay, Isaiah was talking to northern Israel at the time. You see, God had been speaking to northern Israel in words they can't understand for a long time, and they were still rebellious donkeys. They were still kind of sinning against God. And he said, as a sign of judgment, you will hear from people that you will not understand. And understand, that is a sign of my judgment against you. So what happens? It happens. The Assyrians come in. They swoop in. They conquer northern Israel. They cart them off, right? They exile them. Now, this is the deal. While they're in there, can you imagine being one of them? Hearing the generals and the soldiers speaking a language you've never heard? That's what's going on. What are they to think? This is a sign of judgment. God is not going to rescue us out of this right now. There is no salvation for us at this moment. This is nothing more than a sign of judgment on our lives. What he's saying is this. When people come in and they hear nothing but tongues... Lips that they don't understand. It's a sign of judgment on them. Why? Because they're not hearing the gospel. Wrath remains. There is no salvation for them at that moment. That's what he's teaching. That's how serious he is about this. Someone comes in, they hear a lot of tongues, they freak out, they leave. Wrath could remain on that person if they don't. I mean, God's wrath will flat out sit on that dude's shoulders, that woman's shoulders, if they don't know the gospel, if they don't respond to the gospel. That is what he's saying. Don't do that. Don't be that church. And then he goes on to speak very clearly and say the exact same thing. If they enter and you're all doing it, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're crazy. Now, if this is you, if this is you, and there are some of you that do have this gift, some of you I know, and probably a bunch of you I don't, if you feel like you have this gift, don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. This gift was God's idea. And he loves it. He's excited about it. Or else he would have come up with something else and given that out. Of all the things he could have done, he gave this gift out. Right? He thought this gift was beautiful. So did Paul, by the way. Many of you have earnestly felt like in the past you've had this gift. And you've pressed it down because you felt ashamed. Or you've been uninformed on how it works. You might have felt ostracized. Don't do that. I mean... Paul calls this the language of angels. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, think about that. You're able to pray when your mind is unfruitful, which for me, that's a lot. To be able to pray with an uninhibited angelic tongue when my mind is unfruitful, 
That's cool. That's cool to be able to have that red line to God, so to speak, you know? So my submission to you is to pray. Pray a lot. Pray often. Pray for me. Pray for this city. Pray for your family. Pray for the church. Pray for your neighbors. But if you do such, in a gathering, you need an interpreter. Right? We're within the parameters that the Bible gives us. Some of you don't know what this means, or you never heard it or felt this way before. Let me just tell you, I took an excerpt out of a book. I do have some books over there. If you want more material on this perspective, just come up and look at the names of the books. They're great books. This is one of these guys... His name is Sam Storms. He has the gift of speaking in tongues. This is how he describes the first time it happened to him. I found this intriguing. He says, One night, this was when he was a college student, quite without warning, my prayer in English was interrupted by words of uncertain sound and form. I distinctly remember a somewhat detached sensation, as if I were separate from the one speaking. I had never experienced anything remotely similar to that in all of my life. And I kept thinking to myself, Sam, what are you doing? Are you speaking in tongues? I was both frightened and exhilarated. The experience only lasted for a couple of minutes, but I, now hear this, I felt closer to God and He to me than ever before, says a seminary grad. It's a seminary grad. The closest moment he'd felt in his life is that moment, that two-minute span where he was praying in tongues. I think that's cool. I think that's cool. Pray a bunch. We need you to pray. Prophecy. I want to jump into that real quickly. Prophecy in its broadest sense. In its broadest sense is speaking the Word of God. It's just, it's simply just reading from the Word, teaching, preaching. What I'm doing today could be, in its broadest sense, considered prophecy. Not really going to deal with that today. I want to deal with the prophecy that you think of when I say the word prophecy, right? Okay? The more supernatural version of prophecy. Sam Storm says this, Prophecy is the speaking forth in merely human terms something God has spontaneously brought to mind. Some of this has happened to you. I am not a prophet. I have prophesied before. You know, I don't even hesitate in saying that. I've seen a dude come to know the Lord right in front of me just because God told me to say something to him about his history. I had no idea who this dude was. I had no idea what his story was. God said, do it. And I was like, whatever. I mean, nothing to lose. I walk up, I do it, radically get saved. It's a great story. I don't have time to tell, but it's a great story. Like different kinds of tongues, there are a couple different kinds of prophecies. Okay? One is from the Old Testament. It's pretty basic, right? It's like a big chunk of the Bible. It's the prophetic books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, right? These are prophetic books. That is Scripture, and that is finished. Those are prophets, capital P. Okay? We don't have any of those around anymore. It is Scripture, and it judges us. It judges us in every way. If they were wrong, they got stoned. Right? That was the penalty. We don't stone our prophets anymore, right? When an Old Testament prophet spoke the Word of God, they were carried along and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what we have is the church, and the Scripture is built upon those words. This is what it says in Second Peter. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that, that, the Greek in that engenders uh, an image of a wind hitting a sail and pushing a boat. Carried along, okay? In its most simplest forms. So, 
Then there is New Testament prophecy. New Testament, not old. New Testament prophecy to a body of believers. So it would be like me prophesying over you. This is what I feel like God is telling me to tell you right now. Right? We see this in the New Testament. This is what Agabus did. Agabus was a stud. If you ever read through the book of Acts, Agabus was the guy. He would come up and he would prophesy. And there was one time where he prophesied over the church saying, Hey, a famine's coming. It's that, save your money. <laughs> Rat hole your coins. A famine's coming. And we as a church, basically, I mean the idea of this is, is we as a church are going to be able to image the gospel very well because we're going to be in need to an undeserving people in a time of famine. We, spiritually, are in a time of famine and we have deep need that God meets in us even though we don't deserve. It's very, it's very perfect, right? Agabus said it to a group. Then you have New Testament prophecy to an individual. Same dude. Agabus comes up to Paul. This is towards the end of Paul's career as a church planner. Comes up to Paul and takes Paul's belt off. That must have been a little less than awkward, right? Takes Paul's belt off, ties his hands and his feet together and says, this is how you're going to get carted off. This is how they're going to handle you. Now that's a personal prophecy, okay? It's a New Testament personal prophecy. There are different kinds. What is in a prophecy? What can you expect to hear in a prophecy? The purpose, right? Paul says at one point that it brings conviction. It exposes the secrets of the heart. The young man that I spoke to on the college campus like 12, 13 years ago, that's exactly what happened. He had some deep secrets and fears and insecurities of the heart, and I basically just read his mail right there vocally, and he freaked out. Okay? It got his attention. You can say that. It edifies, it exhorts, and it consoles. This is in 1 Corinthians 14, 3-4. It can teach us, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 31. It might even give us direction for ministry, it says in Acts 13, 1-3. This is how they set apart Paul and Barnabas and sent them out to plant churches. It was through a prophetic act that that happened. It might even give us warnings, like we see with Agabus and Paul, right? But how do we receive it? How are we supposed to receive it? So, what do you do when someone comes up to you and says, Hey man, I feel like God has given me a word for you. I feel like i got a prophecy for you. What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? But you're dying to know. This is what 1 Thessalonians says. Paul says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. He's saying test and weigh everything. Test it. Assess it. Analyze it. Look at it. Weigh it. Doesn't say just believe it blindly. Doesn't say be gullible. Doesn't say feel manipulated. It says weigh it. Does it console? Does it encourage? Teach? Edify? Expose? Build up? Is it rooted in love? These are just biblical parameters that we have given to us. If it does, hold on to it. Keep it. Preserve it. Continually weigh it, right? If it does not, abstain from it. Abstain from every form of evil, he says. Walk away from it. Blow it off. I've had to do that too, by the way, more than once. Someone come up and say, I have a word for you. Then finish and we go, yeah, I don't really think so. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't mean to be a turkey, but that doesn't line up with scripture. Okay? So what about error? What about when people miss in prophecies? Prophesy over you. Prophesy in public, what do we do? What does that mean? If it happens often enough, if it happens multiple times, we might submit to them that that's not their gift. Maybe it's something else. 
Okay? Maybe there's another gift out of the 15 plus gifts out there that they're really good at, and prophecy just is not one of them. Okay? Give them props for courage, though. Um, the truth, however, in all gifting, in all gifting, is that we are all liable to miss the mark. We are all liable to miss the mark. It's, it's possible. We're fallible people. We're messed up. We're going to screw. Hey, when I teach, I'm not, I'm not like the most gifted communicator in the world, but when I communicate, I am going to miss from time to time. Sometimes I drive home and I'm thinking in my mind, oh, I forgot that. Oh, man, I really missed that. That was a foul ball. I hit a foul ball today. You know? I mean, we miss. We all miss. Some of you have a gift of hospitality, unless you're sick and tired and you have someone come over and eat at your house and you're a turkey. You missed. We all miss. We're fallible people, right? Does this mean that God speaking to a prophet is fallible? No, it doesn't. God is perfect when he speaks to a prophet. We are fallible. We're cracked vessels. We receive it wrong. We think about it wrong. We give it wrong. But what God gives us is very beautiful and is very perfect. That's how we look at that. So the Old Testament prophets were infallible because it is Scripture for us. They were heavy laden with Scripture, in other words. This is why Paul gave us Ephesians 2.20. says this. Did you have that up there? I'm glad. because It says, is that what it says? Okay, built on the foundation, this is us, this is the church, this is us as a, as a people. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The prophets and the work of the prophets, being infallible as they were, carried along by the Holy Spirit, gives us what we have as a giant chunk of our text. But that prophecy is over, it is finished, it cannot be added to, we will not add to it. There are no more prophets, capital P, only prophets, lowercase p. Does that make sense? And all of our New Testament prophets are subject to the Bible. Subject, analyzed, judged by the Bible. So a missed or a flawed prophecy, it, it, let me tell you, it also doesn't make you a false prophet. That's something totally different. This is what Storm says about this. All of us, at one time or another, some more and some less, prophesied falsely. All of us. We have all spoken words that we thought were from God, which in fact were not. But that does not make us false prophets. It just makes us human. False prophets were non-Christian enemies of the gospel. Okay? So what does this mean? What should our attitude be regarding prophecy? I will tell you two things and then I'm moving fast past that. If you despise it, you're in sin. Okay? I'm sorry. If you despise it, you're in sin. He says this, do not despise prophecies. It's a mandate to you, and it's a mandate to me. Well, what does it look like? Luke, what's the difference between hesitant and despising it? Hesitant is, okay, I'll listen to it, but I am going to be hesitant because I'm not sure who you are, and I'm not sure what you're going to say. Despising it is like what I did last week. Remember when I told you the story about Coco the prophetess, right? Coco prophesies to me. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. You've got to listen to the recording. Coco the prophetess wants to prophesy over me and my my reaction was like okay let me have it I'm sure it's real rich and I'm sure it's incredibly biblical let me have it Coco you know that's despising it that's despising it I was in sin I had to repent if you don't earnestly is us as a staff elders if we don't earnestly desire this spiritual gift we're abandoning a biblical mandate he says earnestly desire the gifts especially that you may prophesy why because you need it 
You need it. You need it. This is what Storm says. Paul was not merely suggesting that prophecy is a good gift. He was commanding that we earnestly desire to exercise this gift in the local body. This is not an option. Paul did not give us a choice. His words leave us little room for maneuvering. Man, when I read that the first time, it hit me between the eyes. You know why? Because I pray for a lot of things and I pray for a lot of gifts. I don't pray that I prophesy very much. But why is it important? Because listen, you can have the cleanest theology in the world. You can be an excellent exegete of the Bible. You can have the most crisp, permapressed theology in the world. And it will not tell you whether to move from this house to this one, whether to adopt this baby, whether to take your kids out of school, put them back in school. It won't tell you any of that. Your theology won't help you with those little decisions in life. Sometimes, sometimes, God will speak a prophecy to you and you'll be like, that's exactly what I needed. That's how I knew to propose to my wife. I wasn't sure. I really wanted to. But I was just dealing with what all of us deal with right before we propose to our brides. And a man prophesied to me and just basically confirmed everything I already knew and gave me that, uh, my theology didn't help me with that though. My fuller seminary did not help me with that. Prophecy helped me with that, right? Some of you, doesn't matter how great your theology is, how many Tim Keller books you've read, it does not matter. Some of you still feel like God does not know who you are. You know cerebrally that's not true, but you still feel like it. You still feel like He doesn't see you, doesn't remember you. Maybe He's dropped you, and you're not sure what He's doing. Those are beautiful moments for prophecy. Like I said last week, half of what encouraged me from Coco was what she said. The other half is that she said anything. Because I felt valued, seen, noticed, right? So if this is you, if this is you, you might feel from time to time like you have a spontaneous word from God for somebody else. You might, okay? Maybe you've subdued it over the years. Maybe you've been fearful of messing it up and being labeled a a false prophet, laughed at, Maybe you've just been overly concerned that you would prophesy incorrectly. Let me tell you, you can just start off by telling a person. This is the best, most humble way to do it, if this is you. Just say, look, I'm kind of new at this. I'm pretty sure I have this, but I'm not 100%. And I'm always able to be convinced, right? I'm, I'm just, so just help me. But I do feel like God has given me a word. Some of it might not work. Some of it might. So just, is it okay if I tell you what it is? That's a very humble posture. Not very many people are going to hear that and go, no, I'd rather you like not. Could you like move on? No one's going to do that. Okay? They're going to hear you out. It's okay to do that. It, like any gift, like any gift, it does take development through exercise. Find me a gift that doesn't. Find me a gift that does not. They all do. Right? We need prophecy pretty bad. We need it. If this happens to you in a service, you do need to talk to me. You do need to talk to one of the elders, Chase. You need to talk to Kevin. You need to talk to us about what it is. Because like tongues, no one's going to touch the, the microphone and address the body unless it's been thoroughly checked through the leadership of this body. And we can attest to the character of the person, the gifting of the person, and the prophecy does line up with Scripture. All of that happens before it even hits your ears. That's a thick filter, and we do that on purpose. Okay, Those two fall within the biblical precepts, the biblical parameters that Paul has given us. All right, So, I'm finishing here now. When we take these gifts and we abuse them, we drain them into chaos and offense, when we do that, 
We look like the old man, the unrescued one, the old person, where it's all about abuse and it's all about pointing to ourselves. This is just what we're used to. We're used to ruining things, even godly things. We're used to abusing things, even good things, right? When we as Christians take the gifts of the Spirit and we misuse, abuse, ignore, despise, resent, hate, when we do those things, our actions aren't really preaching the gospel. They're not. Jesus, however, he came to free us from abuse, which is ironic being that we abused him on the cross. He came to free us from abuse. To free us from ourselves, our real sleazy ways. And because He defeated sin and its hold on us, because He did that, He freed us from our compulsion to have to abuse. Before a person becomes a Christian, they're incapable of good sanctifying growth. Let me just say that. They are bound. I mean, the Bible uses terms like enslaved to abuse things. You can't help but abuse drugs, creation, women, beer, food. You cannot help but to abuse it. It's in you. Whenever salvation comes, it breaks that shackle off and you are now able to do something very beautiful, which is to take those forms of abuse, the deep, 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 deep secrets of your heart that you've not even told your spouse, that only you know and you're scared to even say with your own mouth. The deep things, you're able to take those and line them up with the gospel and see the gospel medicate your wounds and your failures and your big potholes. You're able to see that happen. That's how you grow. That's how you grow. Not from a self-help book. You grow from that. Gospel application. What am I saying about the gospel when I abuse this? Whenever I want to speak in tongues, regardless of what everyone else thinks or feels, what am I saying about the gospel? What am I saying when I want to prophesy and someone doesn't receive it well and I get all irritated inside? What am I saying about the gospel? That's how we deal with that. So let me ask you. Today, what in your heart is being addressed? Hopefully, you've let some of this trickle in and deal with some heart matters. Last week, that's mostly what we did. This week, there's a little bit of application for that, right? You might not have the gifts of tongues or prophecy, and you might still be abusing them. You might still be abusing them, because you might forbid them. You might despise them, hate them, because they look strange and weird and odd, and they do, right? If you do this... You have a problem with something God has no problem with. You're hating something God does not hate. You're forbidding something He doesn't forbid. Right? You despise something He's very encouraged and in love with. He loves these gifts. He gave them to us. You need to let Jesus change your your heart. And not lean just on your broken understanding. Okay? I know how easy it is. You've got to let Jesus come in and heal your broken understanding of what is good and healthy. Let Him tell you through the Word what is good and what is healthy. Right? Some of you have gifts and you still abuse them. I want to ask you what's addressing your heart in all of this. Do you take identity in your gifts so that your fame and reputation rises above that of Jesus Christ's? This is easy to do. Very easy to do. If you're very gifted, if you start to exercise it a lot, especially things like prophecy and helps and service, people will start complimenting you. Hey, you're really good at this. Have you noticed that you're a really good speaker? You're really good as a singer. You're very good at hospitality. You're very good at that. What happens is, is your heart starts to like that praise. It does. 
and we start to kind of <laughs> puff our chest out and we'll get a business card. It's going to say profit on it because everybody says that I'm a good profit and that's how I want to be known. And what are you doing? You're inflating your fame much faster than you're inflating the fame of Jesus Christ. You're pointing the wrong way. That's what happens when you take your identity in anything other than the cross of Christ. You are buried in Jesus. Everything you do points to Him. You reflect His glory. You don't absorb it, right? Some of you, you need to repent from that. Listen, I have to repent from that all the time. I have people come up and tell me you're a great preacher and they don't even mean it. They don't even mean it. They're just saying that because they want me to like them. I get that. I do things because I want people to like me, right? Don't, don't let it seep in and change your heart like that. And last, you might have no gifts at all. You might not have any spiritual life at all. You might not be a Christian. And so to you, this might seem like probably one of the most irrelevant passages and services you've ever been to. <laughs> it might. But let me tell you, it's not. Because ultimately, we're talking about a God who gives gifts and speaks to His people, are we not? It's very relevant. God speaks His loudest to you when He sends His Son. That's the loudest He's ever spoken to mankind in the sending of His Son. He actually gave His most extravagant spiritual gift in His Son. All the gifts He sent, His Son, the biggest. That's the biggest. There is no deeper way for God to prove Himself to you than to speak the loudest in His Son and to give the greatest gift in His Son. If you're looking for a bigger proof, you will not find it. It's not there. He is it. Now, this gift giver, this gift giver, he desires to give you righteousness. That's the first gift we get from God. It's called gift righteousness. That's what theologians call it. They call it gift righteousness because we don't do anything to earn it. It's given to us as a gift, right? And that's the opposite of how we give gifts, isn't it? We Think about it. Think about Christmas. Things like that. We usually only give gifts to people that we like and we think really deserve it. Not very many people out there really give gifts to people they don't feel like deserve it. Unless it's like a graduation gift and you only do that because you feel compelled to, right? But typically when we're in the mode of buying gifts, we only do it for people that we think deserve it. Jesus is the opposite because he's freely giving the most valuable gift to people who absolutely do not deserve it because we're so sleazy. <laughs> We, don't, we just don't deserve it yet. He trades righteousnesses with us. He takes our totally trashed and corrupted and abused righteousness and He trades it for His perfect righteousness, which is a perfect life lived, a perfectly obedient death spent on a cross, and a perfect resurrection. He trades that for us, for our sleaze, and we're buried in His identity. And that is a gift. And if you're trying to earn that, if you're trying to wage yourself into that, or if you just disagree with it, God's wrath remains on you. That's a gift that is trying to be given to you and you yet will not receive it. There is no greater gift than that. There is really nothing more I can say to you on that besides you should change, you should turn, you should quit worshiping yourself, you should quit pointing to yourself and absorbing as much glory as you possibly can and rotate in orbit the one who came for you, who walked this earth, breathed this air, and loved you beyond what you're worth, beyond what I'm worth. So yes, he's a judge, and he will judge you, but yes, he's also a gift giver.